poopy. We'll deal with accounts of uh, Booth's shooting Lincoln. And you've all read the history books a million times about what took place. And for the most part, they're pretty accurate. What I had uh, closed out with in the uh, last uh, episode was that some say uh, he, he did not stumble, uh, sprinted toward the door, and that he uh, broke his ankle, or whatever it was. I mean, not to be technical about him, whether it was a femur or whatever. <clears throat> when uh, his horse stumbled in the darkness of the Maryland countryside when he's making good his escape. But, it, um, you know, some say he did, some say he didn't. I think it's pretty clear he said he did. But anyway, what I want to do is take an account. And I'm not, I'm not going to give it to your road as far as what supposedly happened because you probably, like I said, you've already encountered it. You can find it anywhere you want to with regard to just being a straight uh, supposedly an account of what took place that day. But I'm going to read and use this as a baseline from the New York Tribune, Monday, April 17th. This is, um, well, the subhead is, is this, and I need not say more. It says, Captain McGowan's account of the assassination. The following statement of Captain Theodore McGowan AAG to General Auger may be implicitly relied on as a correct version of the assassination of Mr. Lincoln. And I'm, I'm reading this because I really don't have any doubt about it, and I think he reveals some things that we haven't heard before. All right, this is on the uh, this this account is being taken on April 15th, uh, April 14th, 1865. In other words, right after the assassination took place. All right, so this is a military man, Captain McGowan. And this is, uh, these are his words. On the night of Friday, April 14th, 1865, in company with a friend, I went to Ford's Theater. Arriving there just after the entrance of President Lincoln and the party accompanying him, my friend Lieutenant Crawford and I, after viewing the presidential party from the opposite side of the dress circle, went to the right side and took seats in the passage above the seats of the dress circle and about five feet from the door of the box occupied by President Lincoln. So they were, the dress circle is what we would call now, when you look at uh, sports arenas, you know, luxury boxes, they're about midway up the arena, and even in stadiums, football stadiums, and they ring, for the most part, the stadium. Well, the dress circle is, is pretty much that. It extends from one end of the side of the stage all the way around to the other. So it seems here he was, uh, as he said, on the opposite side of the dress circle, uh, went to the right side and took seats in the passage above the seats uh, of the dress circle and about five feet from the door of the box occupied by Lincoln. So now he's on the same side. During the performance, the attendant of the president came out and took uh, the chair nearest the door. I sat and had been sitting about four feet to his left and rear for some time. I remember that a man whose face I do not distinctly recollect uh, passed, and there's a splotch on this word in the original paper, 
uh, passed me, it looks like, and inquired of one sitting near who the president's messenger was, and learning, exhibited to him an envelope, apparently official, having a printed heading and superscribed in bold in a bold hand. I could not read the address and did not try. I think now it was meant for a Lieutenant General Grant. What do you get the motive? That man went away. Sometime after, I was disturbed in my seat by the approach of a man who desired to pass up on the aisle in which I was sitting, giving him uh, room by bending my chair forward. He passed me and stepped one step down the level below me. Standing there, he was almost in my line of sight, and I saw him while watching the play. He stood, as I remember, one step above the messenger and remained perhaps one uh, minute apparently looking at the stage and orchestra below. Then he drew a number of visiting cards from his pocket from which, uh, with some attention, he drew or selected one. These things I saw distinctly. I saw him stoop and, I think, descend to the level with the messenger and by his right side. He showed the card to the messenger, and as my attention was then more closely fixed upon the play, I do not know whether the card uh, was carried in by the messenger or his consent given to the entrance of the man who presented it. So he doesn't know if the, car, if the messenger took the card in or the person who presented the card went in. I saw a few moments after the same man entering the door of a lobby, of the lobby, uh, leading to the box and the door closing behind him. This was seen because I could not, uh, well, it, it, it really doesn't matter. We'll just go on with it. It says, this was seen because I could not blank from my position to observe it. It seems like it should be uh, start with an L, uh, with an F rather. The door side of the proscenium box and the stage were all within the direct and oblique lines of my sight. How long I watched the play after entering, I do not know. It was perhaps two or three minutes, uh, possibly four. The house was perfectly still. The large audience listening to the dialogue between uh, the character Florence Trenchard and the other character, um, May Meredith, when the sharp report of a pistol rang through the house. It was apparently fired behind the scenes and on the right of the stage. Looking toward it, and behind the president's presidential box, while it started all, it was evidently accepted by everyone in the theater as an introduction to some new passage, several of which had been uh, interpolated in the early part of the play. So they thought it was part of the, the drama. Uh, well, the drama of the time, I think it's supposed to be a, a comedy, American Cousin. A moment after, a man leaped from the front of the box directly down nine feet on the stage and ran rapidly across it, bareheaded, holding an unsheathed dagger in his right hand, the blade of which flashed brightly in the gaslight as he came within ten feet of the opposite rear exit. Now, it's interesting because he said he ran, not making any kind of comment about hobbling or limping or anything like that. Now, does that mean that Booth didn't break his ankle or crack whatever bone he's supposed to have cracked? Or is he so jacked up on uh, adrenaline that he didn't even know it at the time, couldn't feel a thing, which isn't so untoward. Uh, let's see. Okay, I did not see his face as he, as he leaped or ran, but I am convinced that he was the man I saw enter. As he leaped, he cried distinctly the motto of Virginia, Sic Semper Tyrannus. 
the hearing of this and the, and the sight of the dagger explained fully to me the nature of the deed he had committed. In an instant, he had disappeared behind the side scene. Consternation seemed for a moment to rivet everyone to his seat. The next moment's uh, confusion reigned supreme. I saw the features of the man distinctly before he entered the box, having surveyed him contemptuously before he entered, supposing him to be an ill-bred fellow who was uh, pressing a selfish manner upon the president in his hours of leisure. The assassin of the president is about five feet nine and a half inches, black hair, and I think eyes of the same color. He did not turn his face more than a quarter front, uh, as artists term it. His face was smooth, uh, as I remember, with the exception of a mustache of moderate size, but of this I am not positive. He was dressed in a black coat, approximating to a, a dress frock, dark pants, and wore a stiff-rimmed, flat-topped, round-crowned black hat of felt, I think. He was, genuinely looking per he was a gentlemanly looking person, having no decided or obtruding mark. He seemed for a moment or two to survey the house with the deliberation of a habitue of the theater. So just to take a look back at that, and upon some uh, reflection on this rather critical passage, McGowan is saying that <clears throat> the man who apparently was Booth, he showed the card to the messenger, and as my attention was then more closely fixed upon the play, I do not know whether the card was carried in by the messenger or his consent given to the entrance of the man who presented it. In a way, this almost makes me feel like he presented something that excused the messenger, like somebody wants to see it downstairs or whatever. I don't know, but it, that's what I'm taking it as, because obviously the messenger didn't carry it in. So uh, is this how he gets rid of the messenger, and why is he not talked about as being someone vital to what took place in the minutes and the seconds before Lincoln was shot? Okay, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I saw a few minutes after the same man entering the door of the lobby, heading to the box, and the door closing behind him. So now he's entering more closely the space behind Lincoln. And upon closer observation, uh, this word is uh, that I kind of couldn't catch last time, I think, is now the word fail. So, in other words, uh, going on in the reading, this was seen because I could not fail from my position to observe it. There you go. The door side of the proscenium box and the stage were all within the direct and oblique lines of my sight. How long I watched uh, the play after entering, I do not know. It was perhaps two or three minutes possibly four. The house was perfectly still, the large audience listening to the dialogue, and blah, blah, blah. So Booth is somewhere, I guess, in an anteroom, right behind the president. But it isn't like he just went in and fired. He went in and apparently rigged up this arm, if you will, um, a piece of wood, uh, and wedged it between the door and something that it could be wedged into, so that anybody coming in, because the door closed in, or opened in rather, it did not open out. So he must have uh, put that in place, because as some accounts have, have it, he was in there earlier in the afternoon and, and carved out with a knife a notch in the door, uh, which would serve as one end of this, like I said, 
between the door and something that it could wedge against on the inside so that nobody could come in right away. Long story short. So that's uh, Captain McGowan's take about what happened, and I think that's information that none of us have ever heard before about something that took place between Booth and someone in proximity uh, to the president somewhat uh, because the uh, special cop isn't there. Uh, before I leave uh, this particular uh, edition of the uh, uh, New York Tribune, I gaze to the right in another column, and this is interesting. There's a, a, just a little blurb there uh, with a bold-faced head that says, The New Vice President. Washington, April 16, 1865. The governor of several states are in town and a large number of United States senators. Senator Foster of Connecticut, now Vice President. You got that? Arrived this morning. He is uh, pronounced by our ablest uh, public Debaters, the most accomplished parliamentarian in the country, a venerable cabinet minister under a former administration who has recently returned from uh, abroad, says that the quiet and harmonious movements of our Republican form of government uh, under our appalling calamity will be the greatest marvel among foreign nations. Uh, so, okay, this says the... Uh, the Messrs. Blairs have been indefatigable in their efforts to assist the government in its hour of sublime trial. Uh, they have also the credit of having done much to temper the overwhelming grief of the president's stricken household. Uh, Mrs. Montgomery Blair has uh, delicately extended to Mrs. Lincoln an earnest and feeling invitation to make her private residence her home as long as she may remain in Washington. Uh, so this is Mr. and Mrs. Blair, and I'm wondering if the Blair House, uh, which is very close to uh, the White House, was named after them or, in fact, was their house. Uh, the Blair House also was the site of an attempted assassination of Harry Truman by some Puerto Rican uh, political fanatics. Another assassination attempt that didn't work out, although I think there was a loss of two lives, one of... Uh, the fanatics, if you will, and uh, one of the guard for, for uh, Truman. Uh, but what's interesting about this is that the paper is calling him, this is the New York Tribune, is calling Foster the, the new vice president. But there's a technicality here, and uh, I'll read just a little blurb of, of this. Uh, with Johnson's elevation to the presidency, Foster instead became president of the Senate and the first in line of succession. Well, that's all right, fine. Okay, so here you have him being made uh, pros, president pro tem of the United States Senate, which, in effect, if something happens to Johnson, uh, he would step in. So was he a vice president? Technically, no. But if uh, Johnson uh, met with the same fate of Lincoln, he would be our next president and a name that we've all lost uh, in time. That is the uh, venerable Lafayette Sabine Foster of Connecticut, buried in Norwich, not far from Eric the Blacksmith. Now, you can also take this for what it's worth, but everybody swears that they heard uh, Booth shout out uh, Sex Semper Tyrannis, which means thus always to tyrants the motto of Virginia, state motto of Virginia. 
however, take the, like I said, take this for what it's worth, but under the entries of April 13th and 14th, Friday the Ides, this is in Booth's diary, he, he states, and let me just give it a paragraph. Until today, nothing was ever thought of, of sacrificing to our country's wrongs. For six months we had worked to capture, but our cause being almost lost, something decisive and great must be done. But its failure was owing to others who did not strike for their country with a heart. I struck boldly, and not as the papers say. I walked with a firm step through a thousand of his friends, was stopped but pushed on. A colonel was at his side. I shouted, Six Semper, before I fired. Uh, in jumping, broke my leg. I passed all his pickets, rode 60 miles that night, with the bone of my leg tearing the flesh at every jump. Although he is a, uh, he is a, uh, what is it, tragedian, I hate that word, tragedian, a thespian, would that be okay? This may not be too uh, dramatic because he was, he was in bad shape and he rode quite a bit. And this wasn't going down roads, you know, uh, in your car, not lit by uh, street lights or the moon. This is going down, as you can imagine, uh, dirt country roads with no lights whatsoever. Um, but it's funny. I mean, it's not funny, but I think it's interesting. He said, I shouted six semper. He didn't put in Tyrannus. So I don't know whether that means anything. But all right, there you have it. So he said that he definitely did. In, in jumping, break his leg, and that's from Booth's diary. Uh, I think you could. I think in this case, it's probably accurate. Now, one more uh, eyewitness account. This was front page on April seventeenth, eighteen sixty-five, the same day that McGowan's account appeared uh, in the New York Tribune. This is in the Evening Star. Uh, District of Columbia's paper, one of a few. Now, this is not a, there are no direct quotes in this. So, you know, it's, well, you'll see. So I'll, I'll go on with this. The assassination is the uh, subhead. Uh, well, actually, that's, these are tombstone heads. Uh, we've talked about this before. There could be several decks or what you would call lines of, of, uh, quote, headlines, subheads, whatever. It's the assassination, and then it's a statement of an eyewitness. Okay, here we go. Mr. James P. Ferguson, who was present at Ford's on the night of the assassination, makes a statement to the following purport. Again, there are no direct quotes in this. He went to the theater with a lady on Friday night for the express purpose of seeing General Grant, who was announced to be present. Mr. Ferguson saw the presidential party enter the box, but of course did not see the lieutenant general. Why didn't they call him lieutenant general during the uh, Civil War? Okay. He, whoever, however, he, <laughs> he, however, continued to watch the box, thinking the general might intend to slip quietly in in order to avoid the demonstrations that would attend his recognition. And that would, that's probably true. It probably would, be, would have been greater than the uh, reception given to Lincoln. Moving on, when the second scene of the third act of the play was reached, Mr. Ferguson saw, in parentheses, and recognized, in parentheses, John Wilkes Booth making his way along the dress circle to the president's box. Of this box, Mr. Ferguson had an excellent view, being seated in the dress circle just opposite to it, 
next to the private boxes on the other side of the circle. Apparently, this is where McGowan was in the beginning and then moved over to the other side. Uh, this seat he had purchased. Yeah, I'm sorry. This seat he had purposely chosen to afford his companion a good view of the lieutenant general, and for the reasons already stated, was narrowly watching the entrance to do it. He was going to what? Wow, his lady friend by uh, pointing out Grant as if you know, as if to say that's my good friend, and uh, no doubt Mr. Ferguson probably would have got lucky that night. Mr. Ferguson and Booth had met in the afternoon and conversed. Interesting, and were well acquainted with each other, so that the other former uh, that the former immediately recognized him. Booth stopped two steps from the door, took off his hat, and holding it in his left hand leaned against the wall behind him. Behind who? Behind Booth? In this attitude, which is, okay, like a plane, uh, he remained for a half minute. Then, as Mr. Ferguson, he stepped down one step, put his hand on the door of the little corridor leading to the box, uh, bent his knee against it. The door opened, and Booth entered and was for the time hidden from Mr. Ferguson's sight. Mr. Ferguson watched for his appearance in the box, desiring to see who in that party the actor could be on such, an in, on such intimate terms with as to feel warranted in taking such a liberty. Whether Booth shut the door of the little corridor or left it open behind him, Mr. Ferguson fears to state positively, but from what he observed of the door, and for reasons hereafter to be stated, believes he did shut it. Uh, the shot was the next thing Mr. Ferguson remembers. He saw the smoke, then perceived Booth standing upright with both hands raised, but at that moment saw no weapon or anything else in either. Uh, in either. Booth then sprang to the front of the box, laid his left hand on the railing in front, was checked an instant evidently <coughs> excuse me, by his coat or pants being caught in something or held back by somebody, and in parentheses it said it was Major Rathbone, who was also in that box with Miss Harris. <clears throat> a post in front obstructed the view of Mr. Ferguson, but Booth soon changed his position and again was clearly seen by Mr. Ferguson. He now, meaning Booth, had a knife in his right hand, which uh, he also laid upon the railing, and as he already had his left, uh, and already had his left, I guess, on the, on the railing as well, the balustrade, and he vaulted out. As his legs passed between the folds of the flags decorating the box, his spur, which he wore on the right heel, caught the drapery and brought it down, tearing a strip with it. When he let go of the railing, he still clutched the shining knife. He crouched as he fell, um, falling on one knee, and putting forth both hands to help himself to recover an erect position, which he did with the rapidity and easy agility of an athlete. Having recovered his equilibrium, Booth strode across the stage to the first entrance, passing behind the actor on the stage, which was Harry Hawk. When he, meaning Booth, reached the other side of the stage, just there he became invisible by passing into the entrance. He looked up, and Mr. Ferguson said he heard him say, I have done it, and then he lost sight of him. Mr. Ferguson visited the theater yesterday and with Miss Harris, who, again, we had said was with uh, was the... Uh, the company of uh, Major Athbone, uh, the lady who was in the box with the president, okay, her father, Judge Olin of the criminal court, and Judge Cartier examined the box. 
the puzzling roll, uh, the puzzling hole in the unused door of the box was closely scrutinized by the light of a candle and was found to possess indubitable uh, marks of having been whittled with a knife. The ball extracted from the head of the president is of much larger dimension, uh, diameter rather, than the hole. The edges of the hole show the marks of a knife very clearly. So I don't know where they were going with that. Like, did they think that he shot through a wall to kill the president? You know, why, why do we even care about the, the, the uh, comparison of the diameter of the bullet and the hole uh, that was apparently carved out? All right, so be that as it may, okay, they know now. Well, we'll go on. When the shot had been fired, Miss Harris rose to her feet to call for water for Mr. Lincoln and distinctly noticed a bar of wood placed across the door of the little corridor, one end resting against the wall into which it was partially uh, uh, let by a cut, or rather an indentation scooped into the wall. The other end was braced against the opposite side of the door frame. This bar, as the door opens inward, would effect, effectually delay, if not wholly prevent, all ingress into the, boxes, uh, into the box from the dress circle. It would also detain the egress of anyone in the box. All right, so here we have at least something mentioning that there was a bar placed in to keep the door from opening inward. I don't know if they put it together just at that point. It doesn't seem like they did. Wondering what the hole was. Well, I guess the hole was for the other end of the bar. But be that as it may, that's the account on uh, August, on August, on April 17th, three days after the assassination of Lincoln. That was another eyewitness account. I'm just going to deal with one more account, and this is pretty much, this is very early, interestingly. Um, this appears in the Evening Star, once again, the D.C. paper. This is Saturday, April 15th, 1865. And there are dispatches that uh, Secretary of War Stanton apparently sent to others, including Major General John A. Dix up in New York, uh, Lieutenant General Grant. Some interesting things in there, but I'm not going to use that as the account necessarily. But what I find interesting is, and maybe we'll close with this, wondering when it was, that Booth decided that there was going to be an assassination. Uh, in one of Stanton's dispatches, this to General Dix, uh, this was at 4.10 a.m. on April 15th. So this is obviously hours after, maybe six hours, five and a half hours after Lincoln was shot. We small hours of Saturday morning. says, the president continues insensible and is sinking. Secretary Seward remains without change. Frederick Seward's skull is fractured in two places besides a severe cut upon the head. The attendant is still alive, but hopeless. Uh, I don't know what they mean by that. They're, they're referring to, to uh, Frederick, uh, the son of uh, William Seward, as the attendant, uh, they, because there were two attendants in there. There was a nurse and someone else, I guess it was perhaps the... Uh, one of the help that uh, answered the door. Um, not really clear about that, but if they're referring to Frederick, and I believe they are, they've already counted him out as, as hopeless. And most other newspapers' accounts did, but he did, re, did rally and, and went on and lived uh, years after. 
Uh, it says, Major Seward's uh, wounds are not dangerous. Uh, it is now ascertained with reasonable certainty that the two assassins were engaged, that two assassins were engaged in the horrible crime. Wilkes Booth being uh, the one that shot the president, the other, a companion of his whose name is not known, but whose description is so clear that he can hardly escape. So it wasn't two assassins in uh, Seward's home, although there is some question sometimes. And the major they refer to, they're not referring to by name, and that's Augustus, who was a little bit of a, of a strange boy. Uh, so major refers to Augustus. Uh, yeah, he got beat up a little bit, but he was going to be okay. Frederick, obviously, is the one who was in worse shape. That's the one upon whom, uh, whose head uh, Lewis Payne or Lewis Powell or whatever his name was uh, cracked him uh, with his, uh, the butt of his gun, which misfired. All right, now, moving on, and this is where I really wanted to get to. It said in Stanton's dispatch of that Saturday morning, it appears from a letter found in Booth's trunk that the murder was planned before the 4th of March but fell through then because the accomplice backed out until Richmond could be heard from. Booth and his accomplice were at the livery stable at 6 o'clock last evening and left there with their horses about 10 o'clock or shortly before that hour. It would seem that they had for several days uh, been seeking their chance, but for some unknown reason it was not carried into effect until last night. One of them has evidently made his way to Baltimore. The other has not yet been traced. So they're talking about like four there. Um <clears throat> And so there's a, there's a lot of speculation as as to whom. We'll get into it later because there is this whole thing about was it David Harold, was it uh, Edward Henson, or were they both there? Uh, and it seems they both were, but it was assumed that Harold was the one who got his horse and lit out. But that can't be if he's supposed to also be with Powell, as some accounts have him as basically the horse holder and the guy that'll get them out of D.C. And then, of course, Nathan Gutridge and Dark Union said that that Harold got drunk in Maryland that night and had nothing to do with anything. All right. So anyway, that's the uh, that's one of the dispatches from Stan. But let's go and finally to this, and this will close out as far as the accounts of what took place. This is called the Associated Press account, AP. Uh, President Lincoln and wife, together with other friends, late last evening visited Ford's Theater for the purpose of witnessing the performance of the American cousin. It was announced in the newspapers that General Grant would also be present, but that gentleman instead took the late train of cars to New Jersey. The theater was densely crowded, and everybody seemed delighted with the scene before them. Uh, is there any kind of uh, suspicion that Grant knew something was up I don't know. I don't know. I tend to think not, but who knows? All right. During the third act, and while there was a temporary pause uh, for one of the actors to enter, a sharp report of a pistol was heard, uh, which merely attracted attention, but suggesting nothing serious until a man rushed to the front of the president's box, waving a long dagger in his right hand and exclaiming, Six Semper Tyrannus and immediately leaped from the box, which was, one, uh, which was of the second tier, to the stage beneath and ran across to the opposite side, thus making his escape amid the bewilderment of the audience from the rear of the theater and mounting a horse, fled. 
The screams of Mrs. Lincoln first disclosed the fact to the audience that the president had been shot with all, with all present rose to their feet, rushing toward the stage, exclaiming, hang him, hang him. I don't know. I'm not, you know did that happen, really? I mean, how many people put it together about what had just happened? I mean, why would you say hang him? It'd be like, grab him, grab him, or something like that. I mean, they've already come to a judgment here, which I don't think people could do on their feet, uh, witnessing and not really understanding what they saw for some time. Uh, okay, the excitement was of the wildest possible character. And, of course, there was an abrupt termination of the theatrical performance. Uh, there was a rush toward the president's box uh, when cries were heard, stand back, give him air. Has anyone stimulants? Uh, on a hasty examination, it was found that the president had been shot through the head, above and back of the temporal bone, and that some of the brain was oozing out. Really? He was removed to the private residence of Mr. Peterson, opposite to the theater, and the Surgeon General of the Army and other surgeons sent for it to attend to his condition. On examination of the private box, blood was discovered on the back of the cushioned rocking chair in which the President had been sitting, also on the partition on the floor. A common single-barrel uh, pocket pistol was found on the carpet. A military guard was placed in front of the private residence to which the President had been conveyed. An immense crowd was in front of it, all deeply anxious to learn the condition of the President. It had been previously announced uh, that the wound was mortal, but all hoped otherwise. The shock to the community was terrible. At midnight, the cabinet, with Messrs. Sumner, Colfax, Farnsworth, Judge Cartier, Governor Oglesby, uh, General Meggs, Major Hay, and a few personal friends with Surgeon General Barnes and his medical associates were around his bedside. The president was in a state of uh, uh, huh, syncope. Okay. Totally insensible and breathing slowly, the blood oozing from the wound at the back of his head. The surgeons were exhausting every possible effort of medical skill, but all hope was gone. The parting of his family with the dying president is too sad for description. <clears throat> the president, Mrs. Lincoln, did not start to the theater until 15 minutes past 8 o'clock. Speaker Colfax was at the White House at the time, and the president stated to him that he was going, although Mrs. Lincoln had not been well. Because the, paper, because the papers had advertised that General Grant and themselves were to be present, and as General Grant had gone north, he did not wish the audience to be disappointed. He went uh, with apparent reluctance and urged Mr. Colfax to go with him, but that gentleman had made other engagement and with, and with Mr. Ashman uh, of Massachusetts bade him goodbye. When the excitement at the theater was uh, at its wildest height, Reports were circulated that Secretary Seward had also been assassinated. On reaching this gentleman's residence, a crowd and a military guard were found at the door, and on entering, it was ascertained that reports were based upon truth. Everybody was so much excited that uh, scarcely an intelligible account could be gathered, but the facts are substantially, substantially as follows. About 10 o'clock, a man rang the bell, and the call having been answered by a colored servant, uh, he said he had come from Dr. Verdi, Secretary Seward's family physician, with a prescription, at the same time holding in his hand uh, a small piece of folded paper and saying in answer to a refusal that he must see the secretary as he was entrusted with particular directions concerning the medicine. He still insisted on going up, although repeatedly 
uh, informed that no one could enter the chamber. The man pushed the servant aside and walked heavily toward the secretary's room uh, and was there met by Mr. Frederick uh, W. Seward, of whom he demanded to see the secretary, making the same representation which he did uh, to the servant. What further passed in the way of colloquy is not known, but the man struck him on the head with a, with a billy, uh, severely injuring the skull and, and uh, falling him almost uh, senseless. Well, it wasn't a billy club. Well, supposedly, it wasn't a billy club. It was, or a blackjack sometimes, right? Uh, it was the butt of a gun that supposedly misfired. Otherwise, he would not have used the butt of the gun, but that's not included here. Uh, and, of course, there was a staircase between the entry of Powell uh, into the house and then, of course, to the bedroom. There was a staircase, which isn't kind of mentioned here. Uh, the, since the assassin then rushed into the chamber and attacked Major Seward, uh, pay, paymaster, United States Army. That is Augustus. Why they don't call him Augustus, I have no idea. This is the second time they've referred to him as uh, the Major, and here it's and Major Seward. And paymaster, United States Army, was exactly what Augustus was. Uh, so uh, he attacked Seward and Mr. Hansel, a messenger of the State Department, and two male nurses disabling them all. He then rushed upon the secretary, who was lying in bed in the same room, and inflicted three stabs in his neck, but severing in his thought and hoped no arteries, though he bled profusely. The assassin then rushed downstairs, mounted his horse at the door, and rode off before an alarm could be given, and in the same manner of the assassin of the president. Now, again, there's no mention of Harold here, but Harold could have left before this all took place. But again, they've got Harold here. They've got Harold over there. He could not have been the one that went across the bridge if he was in liaison with Booth. It would have just been too much of a coincidence. Now, there was about 10 minutes apart from whoever the second writer is, supposedly. Uh, but more about that later, because one of the guards by the name of Cobb said in the uh, the, the military tribunal to try the eight uh, conspirators that he could not say that Harold was the man he saw. He didn't think so. All right, and he probably wasn't. It was Hinson. It is believed the injuries of the secretary are not mortal, nor those of either of the others, although both the secretary and the assistant secretary are very seriously injured. Secretary Stanton and Wells and other prominent officers of the government called at Secretary Seward's house to inquire into his condition, and hearing thereof the assassination of the president, proceeded to the house where he was lying, exhibiting, of course, intense anxiety and solicitude. An immense crowd was gathered in front of the president's house, and a strong guard was also stationed there, many persons evidently supposing that he would be brought to his home. The entire city last night presented a scene of wild excitement, accompanied by violent expressions of indignation and the profoundest sorrow. The word excitement in these days, and it pops up a lot with all these accounts, makes it sound like they were really, you know, well, it was exciting. You know, they weren't really, it's kind of like a positively uh, inflected word. It's not the way we use it now. Excitement usually means something a little on the positive side. Would you agree? Here it was like agitated, upset. So excitement at that time, excitement at that time had a different meaning a different color than it has today. Uh, and it says, many persons shed tears. 
The military authorities have dispatched mounted patrols in every direction, in order, if possible, to arrest the assassins. While the Metropolitan Police are alike uh, vigilant for the same purpose, the attacks both at the theater and at Secretary Seward's house took place at about the same hour, 10 o'clock, thus showing a, a, a precedented, yeah, i, I got to go, I've never seen this word, presented, it's presented, okay, Here's another word that may have fallen out of usage, like present, yeah, like present, but with an R. Presented plan to assassinate these gentlemen. I guess we could say uh, pre-planned would work just right there. Uh, that they choreographed it at the stroke of 10 or 10:30, uh, probably not. Well, would it make sense to do it at the same time? Obviously, and I think also that Powell slash Payne. We're going to call him uh, Payne from here on in, I think. But don't quote me. Uh, he had the longer ride and should have ridden his horse completely down Pennsylvania Avenue heading to the Navy Yard because that's the route that Booth had taken and that's the route that a second rider had taken and it would have been supposedly the route, route that um, Painter Powell had taken but something went wrong and the latter got all screwed up, apparently. And, I, and again, you could blame this. Uh, you could say, well, that, what happened was Harold split, and he just lit out and just happened to be behind Booth. I can understand that, but don't think that was the case whatsoever. Uh, but, yeah, I guess you could say that was viable, but that means he's, hell's going to be to pay <laughs> when he runs into his buddy who he split on. So I'm not too sure about that Harold was there at all. They use Harold in a lot of places. They, they suppose him in a lot of places, but they have no convicting evidence of such. He actually was just supposed right to, his, right to the gallows, honestly. All right. Uh, some evidence of the guilt of the party who attacked the president is in possession of the police. I don't know who that might be. Uh, Vice President Johnson is in the city, and his hotel quarters are guarded by troops. All right, at 2.30 a.m., there's another note. The president is still alive, but is growing weaker. The ball is lodged in his brain three inches from where it entered the skull. He remains insensible and his condition utterly hopeless. The vice president has been to see him, but all company except the cabinet, his family, and a few friends are rigidly excluded. Large crowds still continue in the street uh, as near to the house as the line of guards allow. All right, to close up this segment, you heard the accounts of uh, those who witnessed uh, Booth shoot, at, or at the very least, um, exit the box onto the stage and off into history. Um, I just want to say this, just and we'll pick this up in the next segment. Going back to, what, was this a mad act by, by um, Booth, or did he know what he was doing? I side, of course, with the fact that he knew what he was doing. Something was going to happen that night, and a lot of people were aware of it. The interesting thing is, did Stanton know that there was supposed to be a kidnapping of Lincoln that might have not worked, but was providing cover to allow Booth to kill Lincoln? You heard the accusations directed from Lafayette Baker towards Stanton as being, what, the mastermind, the head of the uh, conspiracy to murder Lincoln. The beef or pork for cotton businessmen only wanted Lincoln 
to pose for a fortnight. You remember that? Lincoln and Seward. That's all they wanted. Why would Stanton want to just see Lincoln kidnapped? Because that's just going to bring back Abe. And Stanton didn't want him around. Now, Stanton probably knew that there was going to be something that happened that night. Foremost, a kidnapping. The reason I say that was because, first of all, the lights were dimmed on Pennsylvania Avenue. I think as we, we mentioned once, and we'll bring it back again, between the Capitol building and out to the Anacostia Bridge. The telegraph lines were cut. The sentries at uh, the Navy Bridge uh, had a password, and unusually, uh, you know, for them, uh, the two riders that came across knew the password and the secondary password and were allowed to go into the Maryland countryside. And one of them remarked, how strange is this? Understand, too, that the one soldier, Cobb, when um, asked under oath in the, uh, the trial of the conspirators whether or not the gentleman he saw bore resemblance to Harold, he said, I don't think so. All right. So that, you know, to me means Henson was there. Harold, as some accounts have him, was supposedly helping Payne find his way to Seward's house and would, would also help him to come back. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. And if he were with uh, Payne or Powell, whatever you want to call him, where was he going to take him after the fact? Were they not all going to go across the river into the Maryland countryside? But here again, Boyd was supposed to carry out the, the kidnapping plot. Booth, had, who had been kind of reduced in responsibility to that plan, had his own thing going on. And what I'm wondering is whether or not he uh, made it known to Stanton that, okay, look, there's supposed to be a kidnapping ha happening that night, but I'll take care of it that Lincoln is killed and Seward too. The two individuals that were mentioned in the Barnes to um, DeMille business people in New York, who said, look, we don't, you know, we really need these contracts to be pushed through. All we need is for Lincoln to be deposed for a fortnight. And then the Congress would come in, act in the, in the place of the executive, and sign these contracts off. And all the, all the pork for cotton people are happy. No harm, no foul. But with, when the plot to kidnap fell apart, whether or not Stanton knew that it did or even cared, because all it had to do was supply some kind of subterfuge for a booth to kill Seward and Lincoln. Once again, the two that were um, identified by the money people on both sides of the Atlantic to be the bastards that were, were trying to squander the deal they had. Killing Lincoln for the South had nothing but trouble written all over it. There's no reason in the world the Confederates would want him killed, except for spite. And you could say, well, couldn't that happen? Well, sure, certainly it could happen, but it makes no sense, especially since Lincoln had extended to the, to the Virginia legislature the opportunity to come back as a state now back in the Union. Okay, magnanimous offer, if you will. Why in the world would Richmond turn around and say, screw you, we're going to kill you? doesn't make sense. My contention is Stanton knew there was going to be a kidnapping that night. Stanton might have known that the kidnapping was running afoul, probably wouldn't happen, but that Booth's attempt to, to um, assassinate Lincoln successfully would take its place and pretty much um, Booth could 
using the available resources out there that were ready for the kidnapping, using all the plans that were, let's put it this way, you know, congruous with the kidnapping, turn around and say, hey, listen, there's no kidnapping. We just killed Lincoln. Let's get out of here. That's what I think happened. Did Stanton care? No, I think he only wanted to know what actually happened. And as soon as he found out what it was, then he had to do other, as we say, sorts of planning and strategizing, depending on now, okay, what do we got? We got Lincoln dead, maybe Seward dead, and we got a bunch of perps out there. That becomes another whole deal, which we'll deal with next time. But the thing is, is that I don't believe it was a man act by Booth, as even Neff and Gutridge believe it was. I think it was too calculated for it just to be like, let's just go do this. I think that Booth, knowing that there were, the kidnapping plot was supposed to happen that night and probably wouldn't, could avail himself of some of the characters that were going to be used to pull that off. So it wasn't a mad act. And I think the reason why he turned around and said, listen, I'm going to knock him off is because he made a deal to, frankly, contract kill Lincoln for the salespeople, uh, the money people uh, in England and also in the United States. That's where I'm coming from without a doubt. And Stanton uh, was the one also who told the uh, National Detective Police to back off uh, um, Booth. He's a crazy guy. Don't worry about it. And they're like, okay. And they concentrated on Boyd, which was a good idea. But it was also a good idea to, to contract um, Booth. And they did not do that. He was. They were told to lay off. Now, um, as I mentioned before, and as I read uh, about one of the, the uh, dispatches from Stanton, was that he said, oh, they were going to kill Lincoln from, the, from March 4th, when that one uh, communication said, well, should we ask Richmond? That wasn't, Richmond did not know that was going to happen one more time, and that Stanton wanted that to be believed because he wanted to pin everything, and even that military tribunal approached what happened through the prism of the, the South wanted Lincoln dead. This was their plan. It was not. So there you go with that. That's all I'm going to say for right now. We'll look into this a little more deeply. It gets extremely interesting, even more so. If you don't find it interesting thus far, you may find it interesting as we come up to other things. And if you find it interesting now, it's going to get even better because certainly there were a lot of things that were afoot. As I said before, and I'll say in the closing of this show, and that is, you know, Lincoln... Whatever he was, and I, and I don't care. I mean, I don't believe he was, that he was a saint, that he should be deified. He should be held up there along with Washington, who I think sucked too. But I don't believe he also was the prick that everybody has him made out to be, especially those who um, favor the Roman Catholic and Jesuit take on Lincoln. You can find that on Lou Rockwell and on the writings of Tom DiLorenzo, who just absolutely, I mean, crucifies Lincoln I mean, for the last, my God, 15 years. I mean, it's somewhere in between. He was a president. He knew what the deal was. You take on that role, you know, all right, you're not a Christian. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, was he supposed to prosecute the war? Was that what he was told to do because Buchanan before him didn't do it? Quite possibly. All right. I mean, I, I don't like I said, I don't consider him a saint whatsoever. But the deal is, I think he at at some point, probably in 1863, 
after Gettysburg said, look, I, you know, I just don't have the stomach for this, and I'm going to bring this to a rapid end. That seems to be the case. Uh, European intrigues did not want it to end that quickly, and were trying to scramble to make to extend as far as they could uh, impact that. Uh, the war to last longer, and Lincoln beat him to the punch. Uh, a good guy in that sense? Yes. Uh, did he have to pay with his life? Most definitely. And that's why I say that it's kind of rich that despite who all was supposed to be involved in this assassination coup, um, really, there was not an attempt on anybody else's life. This was all just thrown in there, and I'll give information to that effect. The one thing I want everybody to recall is going back to the very first few uh, segments of this whole series, that was Barnes, Watson with the DeMille, um, if you will, import company, uh, also with their clients in England. They were all pissed off that the, the uh, beef slash pork for cotton deal was getting um, terminated by Lincoln, who allowed it to happen. But he terminated it because that was one of the things that was making the war, the war rather, more palatable. And he wanted to make sure that didn't happen anymore. And also spurred him on to tell Sheridan, Sherman, and Grant, scorch and burn, let's get it done with. And they did, which created another whole problem after the fact. I, I don't argue that whatsoever. He wanted the war come, to come to an end, and he beat to the punch those who wanted it to last longer. And that's why I say, in a very mafioso way, it didn't make a difference no matter what else happened. Lincoln had to die simply because he flew in the face of those he should not have. Okay? He made it up as he went along, just like Kennedy. You got a script, you play it, you deviate, you die. That's it. That's all there is to it. And he had to go. He had to go, and Seward had to go. There were supposed to be attempts on um, Stanton's life. We'll, we'll find information to the fact that was bullshit. Okay? Forget it. Uh, Johnson's life, no. And we'll talk about why that might have been plausible. But the point is, Johnson was going to be a follow-up to Lincoln. What did he think he was going to gain by Lincoln being killed, except that he would be president under the same forces and as much hated by the same personages? To include Stanton, who was really the principal figure in getting Johnson into the impeachment situation. That's why I can't buy Johnson was involved in this. And also, who else would have been able to get the lights turned off on Pennsylvania Avenue on that Good Friday evening to get the telegraph cut. And who was the head telegrapher? Eckert, Major Eckert, who uh, was asked by Lincoln to come to the place since Grant was not going to be there. And uh, Eckert and Stanton said, no, no, um, I'm needed elsewhere. I really can't do that. Okay, fine. All right, but there were certain things that happened that night that could not have happened unless somebody in a high place allowed it to happen. So we'll start off with that, the next segment, and then we'll pick up um, Booth, Henson, Harold, and Boyd as they are fugitives throughout the Maryland countryside trying to get out of Dodge, literally, uh, across the uh, Potomac, the Rappahannock, into uh, Virginia, and in Boyd's case, on off to Mexico. Well, we'll pick that up next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.